This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Republican Representative Bob McDermott tells us that this past weekend, a memorial service was held for one of his constituents who died of COVID-19. McDermott, along with Representative Gene Ward, submitted a plan last month to help Hawaii reopen to tourism safely during this health crisis. They believe we have one chance to get it right. They feel a sense of urgency because tomorrow Las Vegas plans to reopen its casinos, and we all know that is a strong draw for many Hawaii residents. We believe that we have a moral responsibility to our employees and our residents to keep this virus as low as possible. Since we can control our borders through the airlines, that's the only way people can get here, we want to require testing up to 72 hours prior to departure. We don't want to test here. We want you to get tested in California or Japan or Korea or wherever you're coming from prior to arrival. You get tested prior to arrival, there's no quarantine. You go about your business. Uh, we can do this, it's best through a national policy, uh, or the airlines can individually mandate it as a, as a uh, requirement to travel. You pay for your ticket and you have to have this. And so Gene and I are trying to work together to try and move this giant boulder up a hill. Like I said, the good news is if you get here, there's no quarantine. As a backup, if someone does arrive here somehow without being tested, we're going to have 400 Abbott machines at the airport, which can do 10,000 tests a day. We don't want to test them here, remember, but they're going to have to wait like customs and get tested. And if they test positive, then they go to a real quarantine, not this voluntary honor system baloney, which doesn't work. We need to do this because we have so many people in the visitor industry that are going to be exposed to, at our peak was 30,000 a day, right? So you're talking, if we go to one-third, it's 10,000 visitors a day. Our count of new cases right now is zero to one a day. Zero cases, zero new cases. We have none. Overnight, we're going to go to 500 to 1,000. And the people who are going to get hurt is not the 24 or 25-year-old worker in the hotel. It's when they go home and give it to grandma, and then she dies. And then we're afraid we're going to see a bit of a backlash against visitors. And we don't want that to happen. We only have one chance to roll it out and roll it out right. So we know the visitors are now, they figured it out with $150 airfare. They're flaunting it. And uh, those are the ones where they post it stupidly and then everybody, the, you know, the vigilante thing happens. We don't want that to happen. And uh, we want to keep the, low, the cases as low as possible. And the other reason is we have the oldest population in america if you go by our our our, our we live to be 81 point something we live to be the longest in america so we have more senior citizens than anybody not numerically but a percentage of our population and so we're concerned about that but if as gene and i are policymakers, we if we can stop it or drive it as close to zero as possible because nothing's perfect we have a responsibility to do that and that's what we're trying to do if I could supplement that, the, the policy issue that's on everybody's mind here and on the mainland, Catherine, is, you know, is it safe to go back to work? And is it safe to visit Hawaii? Basically, we want Hawaii to be the safest place to visit in the world, but you can only do that by testing. You can only do it by assuring the hotel worker that somebody in your room is not uh, infected or somebody on your airplane is not infected. Now, we're working with a piece of legislation with the White House and with leadership to see if we can get this in our June 15 uh, session. But it's where there's a lot of nuances between the FAA and the DOT, what we can do, what we can't do. Because according to the Interstate Commerce Clause, if somebody buys a legitimate ticket, you can't deny them access on the airplane. 
Now, as Bob said, hey, if you, if you don't get tested, you're going to get a 14-day quarantine. So anybody in their right mind to pay, you know, two weeks of a hotel quarantine, it doesn't make sense. But people want to know if it's safe to come to Hawaii. The old mantra, if we build it, they'll come. No, now it's if it's safe, if they feel safe, they will come. It's kind of a new ball game for the tourists. They need safety and they need security, not just sun and surf. Well, Representative Ed Case did, I think, write a letter to the feds asking for some kind of testing policy. If there's anything that uh, the Republicans can do to help advance this idea. The White House did call us, it was the week before, in fact. The, the word is, there's nothing that says in the FAA and the DOT regulations that denies you guys from doing this, but there's nothing that says you can do it. So basically, the White House says either your governor or your legislature has to move on this issue, and that's where Bob and I are having a piece of legislation that the White House is vetting, that leadership is vetting, and hopefully we can get this off of the legal conundrum. There's a lot of analysis paralysis. The FAA, the DOT, the governor, the mayors. Well, hopefully for once and, we all, once and for all, the Republicans, who do have some friends in Washington, mm-hmm. can help move this ball uh, down the field. We don't have all the answers. We know that. But we haven't seen a plan from anyone yet. And we know the administration doesn't believe in testing. And their attitude is, look, it's not 100%. Well, of course it's not 100%. We understand that. A guy can get infected on the plane. But we have a moral obligation to our residents and our employees in the visitor industry to drive it down as far as possible. And that's why we put together this framework. I see a lot of people running around saying they have plans, but I haven't seen any plans yet. Why? So there's one plan for the hotel guys have a plan, which is, deals mostly with hygiene. But we're, we're talking about reopening the visitor industry. How do you do that? This is the only thing in planning. It's a framework by which if we follow it, we will secure, which, for example, now the hotel workers, they're probably either going to sue some of the hotels if we don't get testing. I know some of the union leaders have already said that. And if they feel secure working, they'll go back to work. But when the people come, that's another issue where the safety and the testing is the proof of the pudding. There is a lot of concern that we will see more clusters. How do we deal with that? Because we don't want to have to shut everything back down again. The administration, their attitude is, based on everything I can see, is we're just going to have to live with the risk like everybody else. But we're not Detroit and we're not Chicago. We control our borders. We don't have to accept that risk, uh, number one. And number two, we think that people will pay a premium to take a, a COVID-free vacation. You got to get on the plane. Everybody's been tested. That gives me, I'm going to pay an extra hundred bucks for that ticket. It gives me a feeling of comfort. And the hotel, if all the employees are tested twice a week, which is what their own union leadership is calling for, and the visitors are tested once a week, uh, then everybody is going to be COVID-free and they'll be relaxed and they will pay more for that vacation. I do believe. There's uh, some talk about uh, establishing bubbles you know, bubble relationships, whether it's Hawaii and Japan, Hawaii and New Zealand, Hawaii, Australia. The bubble idea works if you just say, okay, we're only going to open tourism to New Zealand and Japan. That's it. Once you open to Vegas, who had 40 million visitors last year, and our local people love to go there, our local people also are going to come back infected. And then it's no longer a bubble relationship. The bubble has burst at that point because New Zealand is going to say we're not going to send a 1,000 passengers there, and they're going to be mixing with all these people from Vegas and San Diego and all these other places, and then their, their rates are going to go up again. So, but the thing that we have in common with New Zealand and, and, and Taiwan and Hong Kong, which is testing procedures to test all incoming passengers, 
is that we're all islands, if you will. In addition to that, Las Vegas is opening its casinos June 4, and are our people going to refrain from going to Las Vegas? I wouldn't put any money on that. Contamination potential is huge. And by the way, for the cost of this, Bob said $100. I checked with some, and they said Medicare estimates a COVID test $31. If it's market, it's probably around $46. So I don't think anybody who wants a premium seat paying an extra few bucks is not going to be an issue. And by the way, Catherine, I, we believe in six months at the latest, the testing will be a finger prick and it'll be 100% accurate because there's so much money invested trying to find an accurate instantaneous test that uh, we're going to get there sooner rather than later. And the concern that there might be, let's say, someone who comes in and tests positive for COVID, right? Where do we put them? Well, you know, our plan, we turn the quarantine over to the National Guard. And it's, it's a real quarantine. We've got plenty of empty hotels. They get taken to a hotel and they stay there for two weeks and they can't leave the property. It's like going to jail. I mean, it's serious. So that will discourage people from trying to get a cheap ticket and not getting tested and get here. Because if we want to drive it to zero, and we're, and we're talking about human lives here. I just lost one of my constituents uh, to COVID, the second one that I know of, elderly individual. So this is real. And uh, if we can drive it down to zero or best we can, because we have borders we can control, we need to do that. We, as policymakers, we need to try. Okay, but you're really worried about all these other popular destinations opening up as quickly as they are, and you're worried that then our residents may bring them, bring it back home. Well, they will. They're, they're human beings. They're going to bring it home. And the plane has to be 70% full to make any money to break even, right? So how do you do social distancing on a plane? So they're going to load everybody up, and you have, as Jeannie said, you go to JFK, you get, say you get 10 people who are asymptomatic. By the time they get to uh, Honolulu, half the plane's infected. Our numbers will go through the roof, and the elephant in the room that no one talks about is the violence that will occur, and it will occur. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. A case in point, Molokai has already protested at the airport saying, Tourists, go home and take your disease with you. I think that's a sign of the times. That, uh, so we're not kind of making this up or frightening people. It's one of the no. realities that people are not going to put up with. Catherine, what we're doing is we're going to be contacting. We asked the governor to contact the FAA and, and do it the proper way. Now we're going to be a little more aggressive. We're contacting them directly. We're, uh, we're going to... Uh, do a, a milestone and an implementation plan. Here's what it looks like over the next 30 days. So D-Day 1, this is what you do. The airlines, you know, you go to the clinic, you get your test. The clinic uh, transmits it to the airline. They tag it to your record locator number. You're good to go. It's electronic. It's simple. But we want the airlines to do that. We, the private sector can do that better than we can, and they can do it in a day, but we'll give them two weeks to do it. And, and so we're going to develop that because no one has developed this yet. Uh, they're still talking about inter-island travel, which is safe right now because we have no cases locally. I mean, you get one a day, so it's safe to travel inter-island. Problem is nobody has any money. And just an aside, it is heartbreaking to drive my wife to work and see the amount of people lined up at Aloha Stadium for the food bank distribution. I mean, they're all the way back into uh, Waimalu, uh, almost to Kunia, trying to get on the off-ramp for IAEA. And four lanes of traffic at 7 in the morning, and you just, that's when it hits you. 
We've been hearing from House Republicans, Representative Bob McDermott and Gene Ward. Uh, they were talking about their ideas to help reopen the visitor industry safely. They support a plan to test people before they get on a plane. They feel a sense of urgency because tomorrow Las Vegas reopens its casinos and they fear Hawaii residents will travel there and may bring the virus back home to the islands. And now it's time to take a look across the globe. New research indicates that ibuprofen could be a cheap and easy way to cut COVID death rates. And new evidence emerges about what scientists call super spreaders. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday the 3rd of June. I'm Alex Ritson. Scientists say ibuprofen could be an effective and cheap treatment to cut COVID-19 death rates. There's new evidence about the role of so-called super spreaders and British Vogue replaces models with key workers on its cover. One of the world's most common and least expensive drugs is being tested as a possible treatment for COVID-19. Early in the pandemic, some doctors were worried ibuprofen and similar anti-inflammatories could worsen symptoms. But the WHO has since said there's no evidence of that. Professor Mithul Mehta from King's College London is one of those running the UK clinical trial. We have a lot of data already stretching back decades now suggesting that ibuprofen and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories might actually reduce the inflammation in the lungs. This particular formulation we have has been tried in animal models and they increase the survival rate very much so. So we think the benefits are reduced respiratory distress, you know, bringing those symptoms down to hopefully manageable levels and therefore reducing the need for people to go into intensive care. You know, that's the hope. The World Health Organization has announced it's resuming trials of the controversial drug hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. It suspended tests of the anti-malaria drug last month amid fears it could cause potentially fatal heart problems. But the WHO says a rapid review of deaths shows the study can continue. President Trump has advocated the use of hydroxychloroquine despite a lack of evidence that it helps with treating coronavirus and says he took it himself for about two weeks. A megachurch in South Korea, the Cheltenham Horse Racing Festival in the UK and a wedding in Jordan are among events thought to have fuelled transmission of the virus. Now scientists in Hong Kong have studied just how big a part so-called super spreaders play. Without any precautions, the average person with the virus would pass it on to two or three others. But epidemiologists at Hong Kong University found that one person appeared to have spread it to 73 others by visiting several bars in March and more than half of local cases in the territory were linked to just six events. Professor Benjamin Cowling is one of the study's authors. In order to have transmission you need a, a person who's relatively more contagious and also the opportunity for them to pass on infection to lots of other people. We found of all of the cases, 70% of them didn't spread to anyone else. An official report says police officers in Kenya have killed 15 people while enforcing coronavirus lockdown measures, including curfews. The Independent Police Oversight Authority said more than 30 others had been injured. The first country to impose a nationwide lockdown, Italy, has lifted almost all its remaining restrictions. Our correspondent Mark Lowen is in Rome. Italians can travel throughout the country without the need for the necessary documentation that justify their trips. 
and also, importantly, anybody coming into or out of Italy from European Union countries, from the UK and from the Schengen zone can do so freely. And it's an attempt by Italy to try to salvage what's left of the tourism season this year. The man behind Sweden's relatively light-touch approach to the pandemic has said it should have introduced more restrictions. The country opted for recommendations rather than a lockdown and kept borders open and has seen a higher mortality rate than its Nordic neighbours. As the Netherlands continues to ease its lockdown, one restaurant is taking extra steps to ensure social distancing. Dadawan in the southern city of Maastricht is relying on robots to deliver food and drinks. So, what do the customers think? I don't know, it's weird, really weird. Like in a movie, like Matrix, kind of a weird situation. I like it that we're able to go to restaurants now, but I think that getting food from a robot seems a bit strange. I prefer humans. A midwife, a supermarket worker and a train driver are gracing the cover of British Vogue's July issue. They were chosen to recognise the role of key workers during the pandemic. Train driver Narkis Horsford, who's originally from Granada, thought she was just being interviewed. I never in my wildest dreams <laughs> thought I would be on the cover. <laughs> I'm so proud and honoured to be a part of Vogue's project in highlighting frontline key workers, specifically women on the frontline. We're all going through a really, really tough time and I just want us to sort of remain positive and send a message that we will get through this. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's now time for your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're visiting the local farmer's market in search of a popular fruit closely related to the tomatillo. Often sold with its lantern-shaped husk still on, this fruit is eaten raw and used in desserts. A waxy orange skin covers the berry, which measures about an inch in diameter. It contains a natural pectin, which makes it a favorite ingredient for jam makers. The tangy sweet fruit is indigenous to South America and was first sighted on the Big Island in 1825. Since then, it's made quite a home here in our state. Around the world, it has several names. In South Africa, it's called Cape Gooseberry. It's pokpok in Madagascar and goldenberry in the United States. Common in the wild as well as cultivated for home and commercial use, we want to know its Hawaiian name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Lots of anticipation for June 16th, the day when inter-island travel restrictions will be lifted. People are anxious to return to work, particularly if they have jobs tied to the visitor industry. HBR's Kuve Hirishi joins us with a look at unemployment numbers on the Big Island. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, on the Big Island, uh, we've got about 20,000, a little over 20,000 unemployed workers last month in April. And that's about 24% unemployment rate up from... 2.9 in March. So we've got a number of people, large amount of them in the visitor industry, right? Six of the top 10 employers, largest employers on the Big Island are hotels and resorts. And we can think of them when we visit all along the corner side, we've got Waikoloa Resort, right? And just going down that coast. Um, We spoke to Tim Richards, who's a county councilman for that area, Kohala and also Waimea and some of uh, Waikoloa or Kauai High. And uh, he said, you know, the shutdown was a good thing in terms of public health. He thinks we did the right thing, uh, but that the impacts, the financial impact and the long-term financial impact will uh, take some time to get out of. But here's what he had to say about that impact. Essentially, I think the one word would be devastating. The resorts and the, the west side of the Big Island has the primary large resorts stretching from Kailua up through the Waikoloa Resort area, Maunalani Resort area, then Mauna Kea Resort area. And essentially everything has been shut down. I think we lost about 97% of the tourism on this island just in a matter of a week or 10 days because of the COVID-19 shutdown. So as businesses begin to open up on the Big Island, tourism is going to have to wait. Tourism workers will have to wait a little longer. We spoke to Keisha Rodriguez. She is on temporary leave right now from the Fairmont Orchid uh, out on the Waikoloa coast. And she says at first, uh, unemployment, sudden unemployment uh, beginning uh, April 4th uh, was sort of, she's mother of three. So it was, it was, <laughs> it was quite a surprise and it took some adjustment uh, waiting for the stimulus checks and waiting for the unemployment checks uh, to put food on her table. But after the uh, payments started coming in, it was a little bit more of a adjusting, right? Not eating out as much or not going anywhere and trying to save uh, where you can on unnecessary expenses. Uh, but she just got word that the hotel is beginning to take reservations beginning July 1st. Uh, there's no exact date for her to go back to work, but she, we asked her, you know, how do you feel about reopening? Are you ready? Do you feel safe? And here's what uh, Rodriguez had to say. Like one part of me is so excited. Like I really, I can't wait to get back to work. I really do miss that that part of my life. At the same time, when I sit down and really think about it, you know, I then need to think about, okay, we're going to start having travelers come from wherever, you know, mm-hmm. and and how is that all going to work? with what I do, with having the food and beverage services, with having that direct contact with the guests where Mm. we don't just stand and check them in, we actually sit down with them, that close contact. It is kind of scary. 
right? So I, I think these conversations are, are is really kind of highlights that conflict, inner conflict that a lot of tourism workers are feeling on the Big Island and across the state. Uh, we know that the neighbor islands uh, have been uh, harder hit in terms of unemployment when we look at the the numbers, uh, Maui, 36%, right? Especially bad, yeah. Yeah, Kauai, 34. Here on Oahu, we're looking at 20, which is still a lot, uh, comp- you know, highest rates we've, we've had ever. But um, figuring out how to get them back safely to work and what that'll look like and whether or not, I know we saw uh, a UH economist, Car Bonham, talking last week about potential job losses if tourism does not reopen or uh, additional job losses, uh, something like 30,000 more jobs uh, could be lost if tourism does not reopen. And I think that's really uh, at the forefront of what uh, county council is really dealing with right now because they're trying to figure out the budget. Right. And, you know, we have yet to get the official word from the governor as to when they're going to allow trans-Pacific flights. Right now, just inter-island, see how that goes, tweak, tweak the the uh, I guess the protocols right. and, and and try and get keep everybody safe, and I know here on Oahu the uh, local five the hotel workers union has been very vocal about testing and uh, uh, protective gear uh, yeah. for their members and on the neighbor islands a lot of the members there are represented by the um, uh, ILWU. Right. So they, I think when you talk about who's going to protect these workers, it's most likely going to be coming from lobbying from the union. But I, I've seen a lot of uh, hotels actually step up to revamp things. So they've got enhanced hygiene and enhanced cleaning and um, all these measures put in place to keep everyone safe, the guests included. I mean, how are you going to uh, kind of quell that anxiety coming from guests who are not sure if it's safe to come to Hawaii? I think those discussions are underway. Uh, I spoke to, uh, again, speaking to Richards, to Councilwoman, uh, Councilman Richards, about the future of tourism on the Big Island and, and you know, kind of the longer-term view once we get out of this. Uh, here's what he had to say. I think tourism is going to look very different than what it does today. We need to keep our tourism authentic and then it will take care of itself and it may mean smaller scale it may mean less impact but if we keep it authentic i think we can do a good job for both the cultural side the economic side and then the community as a whole so i I think we have a you know once in a society's lifetime to redesign something that we may not have had that opportunity but that is, uh, of course, a further outlook. I, I think right now it's just grappling with getting folks back to work uh, and these unemployed uh, hotel workers, but also doing so safely. And, it, you know, it is a, a dilemma because, you know, we want to make sure that we can stabilize the economy, keep everybody safe, but then, you know, again, use the opportunity to reinvent our economy, not be so reliant on tourism. Right. I, I know that uh, there are also, I mean, the direct impact on tourism workers or on hotel workers is being seen. But then you've also got, when you don't have these tourists coming in, you've got businesses that are dependent on exactly that, tour boats. Uh, and speaking to uh, Councilwoman uh, Viegas, Rebecca Viegas in Kona, right there in Kailua, Kona, she had mentioned that, you know, her daughter's uh, restaurant had to shut down because it was normal it was a lot of tourists coming out and then she had uh, also some uh, tour boat operators same thing 
the the entire uh, I guess overdependence on, on tourism has been uh, kind of a highlighted issue right now, and not just uh, on the Big Island but across the state. I know when I reached out to a number of the bicycle shops uh, hmm. around the on the neighbor islands, they were told that yeah, you know, we normally have a lot of uh, triathletes. You know, uh, yes. that uh, uh, come and uh, a lot of those events are being canceled with sports events. And so they don't have that uh, to depend on for income. And so they were relying on just the local people wanting to get more exercise. But it's just interesting when you, you know, you, you look at all the festivals, you know, whether it's a, mm-hmm. a triathlon or food and wine festival. Yeah. The Mary Monarch on yes. the Big Island oh, yes. especially. Right. I know it's had an impact uh, speaking to uh, several uh, businesses on other islands that would actually depend on going to Mary Monarch and the sales that they'd get from Mary Monarch. I know uh, Puahina on Kauai, a clothing company, they had to close up shop in Hanapepe uh, and transition to online because they were going to wait for that Mary Monarch, you know, big cash, cash in there that did not come. And so... Figuring out, I think, for this next, as inter-island travel kind of ramps up, uh, that idea of the Kama'aina economy and having local residents uh, spend their money in these businesses to see if that, you know, some of these businesses can come along right. uh, without. And we saw that with SARS and 9-11, right? The whole mm-hmm. emphasis on staycations, right? So uh, asking people if you have the means and can travel, please come enjoy ah. the, the other islands uh, if you haven't done it because, you know, we could certainly use some help, right, <laughs> at those restaurants and at those hotels. Definitely. I, I do plan, hopefully, when, when we get the okay to do some inter-island travel, to go check out uh, how things are going on our neighbor islands and especially on, on the Big Island. Okay, yeah. That's an important part of the, the story statewide. Definitely. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. We have been uh, talking to HBR's Kuvehi Reishi. You can read her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. B-O-H dot com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Mars Cafe, we'll find out how Mana Up is managing their cohort companies through this pandemic. We'll learn how their fundamental goal to scale Hawaii companies through the internet has prepared them to operate even when COVID-19 forces us to shelter in place. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Today's Reality Check offers a glimpse behind the tension between some senators and the governor's cabinet members. Honolulu Civil Beat's political and opinion editor Chad Blair has a story about that. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, bad blood. 
You know, do you remember uh, late last month, Mike McCartney, the head of DBED, Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism, EGA's former chief of staff, he was uh, called to testify before two Senate committees, Ways and Means, and the, I think it's the Energy and Economic Development and Tourism Committee. And um, McCartney basically refused to answer the questions from the committee uh, and said he was there to protect his people, meaning staff on DBED. Didn't say much more, but the word harassment, I, I believe, came out. And, uh, and everyone was going, what's going on here? Here the senators were trying to find out What's the plan? What's the economic recovery plan now that we're trying to get out of COVID somehow? But it didn't come out. And a lot of people were just scratching their heads saying, what the heck was that all about? Well, Civil Beat obtained a copy of an investigative report from the Hawaii Tourism Authority. And the report concludes that Senator Glenn Wakai, who, by the way, chairs one of those very same committees we were talking about and who was questioning McCartney that day, he has, uh, there, are, there is some evidence that there may be um, harassment on the part of Senator Wakai, bullying, intimidation of uh, HTA employees. And, and that may help explain why there was the, the, <laughs> the tension, the inability to work together between the Senate leaders uh, and the, at least DBED in this case, and perhaps the administration. Yeah, now th- that seems to make more sense because I know when we asked... Uh, uh, Senator Donovan Ella Cruz about some of this tension, you know, right. they, they were trying to... He was there, too. Yeah, they were trying to kind of smooth it over. Oh, no, we we get along just fine with the, the governor. We're working with the, his people, but it's like, eh, there well. was something, <laughs> something there that wasn't quite right. Yeah, and I don't know that this explains everything. This is a tense time, and we're trying to recover the state. I mean, it, it's just been a, the biggest crisis we've had in decades. I should tell you that Senator Wakai says he has not behaved inappropriately uh, towards members of the HTA. He says that uh, he may be tenacious, he may be demanding and trying to get information from the agency, but as a senator, his committee oversees HTA, tourism, and he feels that it's his job to, you know, look, where's the taxpayer money going? Is it being spent wisely? What are you doing over there? So he, he flatly denies uh, that he has been inappropriate. Uh, and I read him directly, the, the quotes from the report about harassment, intimidation, bullying. Uh, perhaps the most serious charge was that he, he threatened to fire uh, three staff members at HTA. Well, now, the the other interesting um, thing about this story is that uh, uh, Senator Wakai's wife used to work with HTA, mm. right? Yeah, there is there is that twist as well, and she is mentioned in the report. Her name is Mickey Wakai. She worked there for about three years, and, and then she was fired, and it's right around that time, this would have been 2016, when Wakai really kicked up his inquiries via email, other demands, trying to get answers. This was also around the time that Hawaii lost the Pro Bowl, right? Remember how we would host the NFL mm-hmm. Pro Bowl even though we paid the NFL for it, uh, it was a pretty lucrative thing in terms of uh, attracting tourists and, and um, getting attention for the state. And, and we lost that contract, and it hasn't been back. And uh, Glenn Wakai, of course, is very interested in uh, sports. He's focused on Aloha Stadium. But why exactly Mickey Wakai, that's her name, uh, was fired is a little bit unclear. Was there retribution in mind here, retaliation 
on the part of Senator Wakai. I should say I, I tried to speak with Mickey Wakai, but was not able to reach her. I, I left a message with Senator Wakai. Well, I can see how uh, Senator Wakai would say, well, look, I'm doing my job. I'm a lawmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a yeah. former journalist, uh, and he's asking questions, asking tough questions. Uh, but some might say, well, are you abusing your power? Are you, are you going too far? Well, and, and here's where you really have to look at, at the rules that the state has. There are uh, policies uh, on harassment, uh, not bullying per se, but on harassment in the workplace that apply to state employees. That's out of DHER, the Department of Human Resources Development. Uh, and there are also, uh, an, there is an anti-harassment policy that the state Senate has. In fact, they just updated it earlier this year as a result of the Me Too movement, which was more sexual harassment than harassment, but still very similar. And I can tell you where it stands right now is that the report from the HTA concluded that there may be reason to go forward and look into this more. That is now before the Senate. The Senate has an investigator looking into this, trying to find out whether Senator Rakai did something wrong or not. Okay, so that's where it's left, is we'll see what the Senate does. Right, but it's it's been there for almost uh, over a year now. There doesn't seem to be any answer. Just real quickly, Senate President Ron Kochi said he could not comment uh, on personnel matters. But, boy, there, there is an open question as to what exactly went on here. Okay, well, we'll have to see what happens. All right, thanks so much, Chad. Good story. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair, Politics and Opinion Editor, with today's Reality Check. To read the full HGA story, visit sybilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. Tune in to HBR1 Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. Performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week is Tavana, a one-man band who uses his feet to lay down a variety of grooves to accompany his soulful, island-inspired rock and blues. Plus, host Marco Olivari chats with Tavana backstage. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HBR1 or listen on your smart speaker. Earlier in the show, we told you about a berry that's native to South America, but was first found on the Big Island in 1825. In the wild, it thrives on open mountain slopes at elevations between 1,500 and 4,000 feet. Its fruit decreases in size with decreasing elevation. The mature fruit has a waxy orange skin, looks similar to a tomatillo encased in a tan papery sack, and the fruit is easily popped out of its husk and can be eaten straight off the bush or used in cooking, uh, especially in jams, uh, preserves, and desserts. A favorite in Hawaiian uh, provincial cuisine, the flavor has been described as a mixture of pineapple and strawberry. The next time you go to your local farmer's market, keep an eye out for this tangy berry. It could be marketed as goldenberry or Cape gooseberry, and its Hawaiian name is poha. We had lots of calls on this one. The winner, 
uh, Kenny Cato from Hilo. He was the first to call. Uh, he says he loves poha. He remembers growing up eating wild poha in his backyard. Thanks for playing along with us today. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today, the city of Minneapolis upgraded the homicide charges against a policeman and levied charges against three other officers. It's not clear what impact that will have on the protests across across the country uh, for the death of George Floyd. The protests are the subject of our ongoing segment, The Long View. Contributing political analyst Neil Milner joins us this morning. Hi there. Hi. So, yeah, lots unfolding with this. Yeah, for sure. The charges came down today for the other three with a rather peculiar accompanying statement by the Attorney General of the state of Minnesota who cautioned the people how hard it is to make these charges stick. Uh, One, there's nobody in that protest that doesn't know that if you pay any attention to how hard it is to make them stick. But two, that's not to me a very um, smart way to announce charges when people are so upset about the injustice. Um, And it's really not the job of an attorney general to say how hard a job he or she's going to have in in making the case. But that's where we stand right now as far as uh, Minneapolis cases. But, of course, this has gone far beyond that. Uh, This was just a very graphic, precipitating incident where you could clearly see the uh, police officer Killed the other, uh, you know, uh, 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 killed someone with three others sitting around watching. But it's, as I say, it's far beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it was distressing to see the video uh, because bystanders were saying, hey, do you need to, you know, be on his neck like that? Give him a break. He's, you know, he's not moving. And, and uh, yeah, so a little, a little distressing. Yeah, well, a little distressing. And it follows a pattern that it's very clear nationally that, uh, uh, blacks get killed in these kind of situations disproportionately compared to whites. And the recent statistics on Minneapolis is that uh, they use, the Minneapolis Police Department uses violence against uh, blacks three to four times more than it does against whites. Um, and so with a population of 20% of the population of Minneapolis is, is African-American, and 60% of the use of police violence is against African Americans. And it's just amazing to see just the response in so many cities, you know, with and I see to see how it's escalated with the looting and it's, well, it's it hurts so it, many people. It is and it isn't, but this and this follows a pattern that we've certainly seen all of my adult life whenever there's riots that there's a precipitating incident uh, there is something else going on that brings people to the streets. It usually has to do with racism. Uh, there is looting involved. People complain about the looting. There are some killings that get, in, get involved more by the police and or the National Guard, at least historically, than by, than by uh, anybody else. And then I, you know, if you want to see what these things are about, um, you, all you have to do is to go back to read the Kerner Commission report, which was the 1968 report on the urban riots that took place in 1967 
and actually before the killing of Martin Luther King, which, which followed this. And they essentially said a few things that people should keep in mind now, one of which is that protest is very much a part of our politics. Second, that there is a myth of peaceful progress in, our, in the way we understand history. If you look closely at history, protest and violence have often been a part of it, and, and sometimes they've been successful. Uh, the third thing is that, as the Kerner Commission uh, tried to get people to understand, this is about institutional racism. This is not about one person getting killed. It's not about prejudice. It's about white institutions creating, including the government, of course, creating a situation in which racism has not only existed for 315 years, but it's been reinforced by all kinds of policies. That's the nub here. There are two things that are going to make this very difficult. I mean, we'll come out of this. Uh, the, the riots will dissipate, the looting will, will stop. But there are two things that have to come out of this, one of which is to get people, more people to get serious about what institutional racism means, uh, as opposed to just, and I shouldn't say just because it's important, it's really important to figure out better ways to train and, and deal with police departments. That's just a little problem here. The bigger problem is to, uh, getting people to start thinking in ways that are a little different. And, and second, to understand how that implicates much of what American society is like in regard to race. Um, before I go on too much more, let me just mention a study that was done in, um, in, a, well, in Milwaukee that looked at the way the U.S. government and uh, real estate uh, had essentially redlined uh, cities, Milwaukee, in the 1930s that essentially said, um, we're not going to give any federal money to black people if they try to move into this neighborhood. That is, they won't get the, they can't get, they can't get the loans to move into that neighborhood, and they can't get, because we don't want to have mixed neighborhoods. This is the government talking. And second, that you can't get money to renovate the house that you own in the inner city because that's, that's delightful. If you look at where that was, and you then overlay those things on today's crime and, and uh, wealth, uh, uh, lack of wealth and all those, all those bad things, they fit almost exactly. And so you see this pattern, and people have to, start, have to start thinking about it. So there's a lot to understand about this riot. The riot is, and the looting, and the, is, is, and they're not all the same. This is very different from the protest we had about the 30-meter telescope. But there's this overall context, historical context, that's, that's hard to understand. The president is the last person in the world who's going to understand this or care about it. But for well-meaning people to begin to try to wrestle with this in a way that's more successful than it has been in the past, that's the challenge. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you, you have to stop and think when we hear that phrase, I can't breathe, because we heard it before yeah. in, in another in another. Uh, in another uh, death of a black man, you know, we saw the Rodney King riots. We, and you just kind of go back, but and then you see, you know, the images on TV with the police response, uh, and you're going, oh my goodness, you know, the police brutality. You know, I said earlier, watching that first video, that you know, it's a little distressing. It's it's a lot distressing, really. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's you know where he's calling out for his mother, and 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 like I said, bystanders are saying this is not right. Get off his neck. And and part of this is about 
moving away even even uh, further from the rotten apple idea. That is the idea that it's just a rotten apple who do, doing this. Not all police officers are bad, but there's clearly something in the police culture in in most cities that makes them react to a certain disproportionately violent and suspicious way to blacks. And if you don't think so, just start reading the anecdotes of some of your favorite sports and entertainment people about how they've, how they've gone through that. That said, uh, there are things that you can do to train departments to be better. Uh, there are certain things. Um, and you can... <laughs> it's... It's a, it's a well-known, established fact that uh, one of the ways you, one of the worst things you can do in these kinds of situations is to, for the police is to escalate immediately. That is to, milita- that is to wear the riot things, to go in and, and, uh, and attack people and all those things. It's, there's 50 years of research that says that that doesn't work very well. Right. Yeah. We are seeing, you know, the, the president's hard line. Right, dominate. Yeah, well, he's yeah. I mean, he he clearly well, he's not real good on looking at evidence of any kind about anything. But on this one, if you want to see a case study of how de-escalation, uh, how escalation makes things worse, just look what happened when the police attacked peaceful protesters in uh, so that the president could walk to the church. Um, it just escalated everything. More people came back the next day. Now, I want to say this. It's hard to de-escalate. I mean, it's amazing how many police departments have done things here that they never would have done. I mean, good things in 1968, one of which is, is uh, that they don't start highly militarized. They, they, you know, a lot of them didn't even have shields and, and, and things at first. The other thing is the, the notion that police would kneel down in respect which they've done in a number of cities, and say, we think this guy, you know, this, this police officer in Minneapolis or the four of them are awful. That's, uh, that's new. But I've watched some of the demonstrations, some videos, the, the ones in Brooklyn. They're very fluid. It isn't like the cops, it, it isn't like they're planned a lot in advance, which right. is how, and, and that the police meet with the protesters in advance and say, these are the ground rules, what do you think? These are much more fluid than that. Yeah, it's it's a, a fascinating thing that, that we're seeing. We are running out of time. I uh, do want to thank you, though, for uh, for bringing this this up as we uh, as we kind of hope things calm down. Thanks so much. Okay. That was political analyst Neil Milner with our long view as we reflect on the protests of the past. We do have to go, but up tomorrow we talk more about the racial tension caused by the death of George Floyd at the hands of police. Please leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook or The Conversation HPR. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.